Father, you have brought us here today to hear your word proclaimed through a blemished man, a broken man. And you have brought a broken people together to hear this word. I pray that as we hear your word, that we may think about it deeply, meditate upon it, and apply it to our lives. For Lord, you desire us all to be holy. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. The ermine is a weasel that lives in the woodlands of the northern hemisphere. And it's a unique creature because it's known for its snow-white hair that turns snow-white at wintertime. To capture these weasels, hunters find their home, smear grime at the entrance of these weasels' homes, and unleash their hounds to pursue it. As the critter scurries into its den for shelter, he spots the grime and refuses to enter into its burrow. The ermine avoids spoiling his snow-white fur at all costs. He allows himself to be captured to preserve his purity. For this critter, purity is more valuable than life itself. Purity is more valuable than life. And Leviticus teaches us this principle that God wants us to also value our personal moral purity more than our very lives ourselves. Entering into Leviticus chapters 21 to 23, the call to prize holiness remains the dominant theme in the entire book. The focus is, however, here on worship. The worship of Israel is to, to be holy. Our worship is also to be holy. How is holy worship encouraged? Well, we see in this passage today, this text, this section of scripture, two ingredients at least of holy worship. And the first ingredient is holy leaders. And the second ingredient is holy times. Holy leaders, holy times. And so let us look at this first heading. And if you want to write it down, it is holy leaders. Chapter 21. What is a holy leader? Well, first of all, a holy leader has high standards. Look with me in your Bible. Open up back to Leviticus 21, verses 17. That is Leviticus 21, verse 17. And we read this passage here. Say to Aaron, for the generations to come, none of your descendants who has a defect may come to offer the food of his God. Men who had blemishes on their bodies could not, in other words, serve as priests. And that was made very clear in that reading today. The blind, the leprous, the deformed, those who struggled with any physical um, inability were restricted from leading worship in the tent of God, which was known as the tabernacle of God. Why was this the case? You might have been a bit confronted by that. Why would God not allow people who had defects from serving him in the tabernacle? Well, we need to understand this about the tabernacle. The tabernacle represents heaven on earth. Heaven is perfect. Everything in the tabernacle, therefore, had to be spotless, perfect, undefiled, each element in the sacred tent was to be flawless to represent a God 
who is flawless. But you might be relieved to know that the requirement for physical wholeness is no longer a condition for ministry. It's no longer a condition. For example, one of my... um, one of the greatest Puritans, William Perkins, labored in prayer, and you can see him on the right there, with a deformed hand. He had one finger on one of his hands. It didn't stop him from serving the Lord. Dave McDonald, who is the pastor of Salt Church in Lake Cadai, and he actually wrote a book on cancer, continues to teach the whole counsel of God to his congregation, book by book, even though he struggles through cancer. Depression did not stop Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, from a world-changing pulpit ministry. All these men have served the Lord with physical and even mental blemishes. What has changed from the time of Moses until now? Jesus. We do not need flawless priests, or he is our perfect, great, high priest. Jesus represents the perfection of heaven on our behalf because none of us could. But even though worship leaders do not need to be whole like those in those Levitical days where they had to be like pure, perfect men, they, we, leaders today in the church, still need to have high standards. They're still called to live a life of holiness. Consider some of the qualifications of a pastor in Titus. And turn with me to Titus chapter 1. So you need to go to the New Testament. Titus chapter 1. It's after Colossians. It's after 1 and 2 Thessalonians. It's after 1 and 2 Timothy. And then you can find Titus chapter 1 verses 6 to 8. Here are some of the qualifications for a church leader. You ready? Someone in ministry. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not giving to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, One who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. It seems pretty tough to live up to, but really, that is the standard, the normal, typical standard for someone in ministry. There's no reference here in this, in a sense, job description to skill or physical appearance, the high standard for our worship leaders is moral purity. Robert Murray McShane, the old Scottish pastor, therefore said, quote, the greatest need of my people is my personal holiness. Holiness is the chief call for those in ministry. It is the chief call for me. If I'm not growing in holiness, how can I actually serve as a model to you of holiness? My body, my life, my whole way of being should be holy because I'm also leading you on this journey to conform to the way of Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate standard 
of perfection. We priests, leaders, gospel workers are called to be holy. If I reach a spiritual plateau, my pastoring will become fruitless. The holier I become, the holier our church will become. And the holier our church will become, the more impact we will have in Scone and beyond. And so a holy leader has holy standards. That's the first point. The second point is a holy leader has holy emotions. Look with me back at Leviticus 21. Turn with me to verse 5. Leviticus 21 verse 5. The priests were urged not to mourn over the dead, which seems a bit strange. They were not to be downcast, in other words, like the pagans. Look at verse 5 in your Bible. Priests must not shave their heads or shave off the edges of their beards or cut their bodies. What on earth is the reason for this particular law? Well, commentators have wondered. They're going, oh... I wonder what's happening around Israel. Well, that's a good question to ask because the Egyptians and the Canaanite clans had cult ceremonies for the dead and practiced things like ancestor worship and cutting and shaving. Scholars believe that shaving and cutting were pagan funeral rituals that took place. Like many funerals today, they were bleak full of gloominess and wishful thinking for the dead. By prohibiting these practices, God was thus telling the priests not to mourn over their relatives like the pagans do. They were to be set apart in their emotional life as well. They were to be set apart emotionally. Paul the Apostle also picks up on this theme in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. We do not need to mourn like the pagans who have no hope. He says, what is the difference between us and the world if we are to follow this biblical principle through? We are set apart as people of joy in the face of death. We have resurrection hope. Jesus has defeated death. Our faith in him guarantees us eternal life. It is not a time of cutting and depression for us. Maybe if the person was an unbeliever, maybe we might experience those emotions. But when a believer dies, when a brother or sister dies, it is like a wedding. It is like a birthday party. We celebrate with them that they have moved from this broken world into the eternal arms of God to enjoy his presence forever. That is good news. We do not wear black. We don't cover our eyes. We don't look downcast like the world. We are different. I once went to a funeral for a Christian and they put colors of every color of the rainbow throughout the entire church to proclaim to all there that this is good news for the believer. This is good news. We are different. We have holy emotions. We wear bright hues, sing loud praises and announce death is swallowed up in victory. And so we see the second principle here in the text for a holy leader is that they have holy emotions. And third, of all, third, a holy leader also has a holy marriage. Look with me at verse 7 in Leviticus 21. They must not marry women defiled by prostitution or divorced from their husbands because priests are holy to their God. 
In addition to this law, the high priest, who at this time was Aaron, would, carry, would also not be able to marry just anyone. He had to marry a virgin too, according to verse 14. And so these laws are very similar to our calls for sexual purity today. Through Christ Jesus, we are all priests and God invites us also to pursue a holy marriage. And so if you want to go back, we're going to be flipping back and forth today. Go to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians in your Bible, chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. Here's the kind of standard for marriage for the Christian. This is the standard. It says, verse 14 and onwards, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Verse 15, what harmony is there between Christ and Belial, which is another name for Satan? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? But we are the temple of the living God. And so what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? The answer should be quite clear. Nothing. That is why marriages that are unequally yoked are the most painful things to observe, particularly as a pastor, even more so if a pastor marries an unbeliever. That's a whole nother kettle of fish. But what happens in that context is one person is trying to pursue a life with God, a holy life, but the other person is running in the opposite direction. What happens to that covenant of marriage over time? It begins to stretch. They're going in opposite directions to the point where it breaks. And the marriage is unlikely to last. Marriage only works when a man and woman are on the same page together, even more so in ministry. If Jessica, for example, was an unbeliever and wanted to just pursue a life of idolatry, I wanted to pursue a life of mission, evangelism, pastoral care, things like that, Things wouldn't all be that healthy in our marriage. It wouldn't really last. And because of that, we would likely both be out of ministry altogether. And can I say, this actually happens. So many marriages, ministry marriages break down because they're not on the right page together. And so, a holy leader also has a holy marriage in sum, God called his priesthood to live a holy life by holy standards, emotions and marriages. But over the centuries, the vision of holiness was sadly distorted. The Pharisees broke God's vision. In the first century, Luke the evangelist said these words in Luke 18.9, they trusted in themselves, they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. The priests became kind of like formal elitists. They became like tombs in the church, which have their eyes and hands lifted up at heaven, but have no soul, says one Puritan. On the street corners of social media, they broadcasted their fasting and prayer online so that everybody could see. They puffed up their chests with their pretend righteousness, celebrating their latest ungodly social reform. The law aimed for humble obedience to the law, but the Pharisees made it about public 
elitism. The Pharisees failed to understand that public status and ceremonial correctness do not make a person holy. Holiness is not about our external posture, the way we look. It's all about the condition of the heart. Holiness is about heart transformation. We can only know if a leader is holy by looking beyond their external view, um, how they present themselves, into the deepest parts of their hearts. It would be wise for you to ask this question to your spiritual leaders. Where is their heart? How are they going with their journey with the Lord? Are they, in a sense, violent for holiness? Are they trying to get more holy? Is that their number one passion in life? Is their life of purity their prize? I pray that you will pray with me that our spiritual leaders in this church, in other churches, in parachurch ministries, wherever leaders who stand up and declare, I'm a leader of people are, wherever shepherds are, I do pray that you'll pray for their personal holiness. The standards are high for leaders. And the New Testament also teaches that their judgment will be harsher because they're leading souls. And I pray that they will be holy. Pray that I am holy. Please, pray for me. Can you do that? Thanks, guys. So, the one big point today was about holy leadership, and there's one little point that I'd like to look at, because we're running to the end of Leviticus, because we're hitting Advent. I'd like to look at you, with you, the second last heading, and that is holy times. And there's a bunch of holy times here. There's a bunch of festivals in Leviticus 23, and it would be good for you to read through this chapter again we've jumped over chapter 22 because it's repeating kind of the sacrificial offerings and we spent like six weeks in the sacrificial offerings so we're going to jump over that and continue leviticus 13 is all about feasts or better put appointed sacred times these feasts were holy moments of celebration and praise to god what are these sacred times well, these feasts can be broken down to three sections. We've got the weekly feast, we have spring feasts, and then autumn feasts due to time restraints. Let's just look at the weekly feast, which is known as the Sabbath. And so look with me at chapter 23 of Leviticus, verse 3. And these are social events. These are assemblies gathering together to do these things. This is not um, someone alone doing these things. These are community events. And so verse 3, chapter 23. There are six days when you, you may work, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, a day of sacred assembly. You are not to do any work whether you live. It is a Sabbath to the Lord. The phrase Sabbath of solemn rest, can you see it there in the text? Sabbath of solemn rest literally means the most restful rest. It was like holiday rest. Oh, you just chill and enjoy it. It's complete rest 
the CSB translation says. God invented rest and wanted his people to savor it, to enjoy it, to delight in his presence. But this rest was not for an hour of worship on a Saturday morning for the Jews. They also had to take that rest with them as they went back to their dwelling places and actually stopped from all labors, unlike the Egyptians who were addicted to work and the Canaanite clans who did not stop. The whole community was to completely stop all activity to savor the blessings of God. But I want to get a little bit nerdy for you just for a moment. Abraham Joshua Heskel, who was a late Jewish philosopher from the last century, once wrote an illuminating book titled The Sabbath. He pointed out that Israel was to be different to all other worldviews in that time. He says Judaism is a religion of time aiming at the sanctification of time. In other words, the goal of Judaism is not to be shaped by material space like the other nations around them, but to be shaped by the holiness that is found in rest in time. For this reason, Heskel said, to observe the Sabbath is to celebrate the crowning of a day in the spiritual wonderland of time, the air of which we inhale when we call it a delight. He also said, the seventh day is like a place in time with a kingdom for all. It is not a date, but an atmosphere. He then described this atmosphere as, quote, the presence of God in the world open to the soul of man. The presence of God in the world open up to be experienced, enjoyed, savoured by man. The Sabbath day was a day to savour God's presence, in other words. And this is what's happening in Leviticus 23. Through sacred days like the Sabbath, different feasts and festivals, Israel stopped to encounter the holiness of God in time. But turning to the New Testament, this weekly feast utterly changed. It was revolutionized. Jesus made a radical claim. He said that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is holy time, in other words, embodied in a human person. He is the place where the holy presence of God is opened up to the soul of man. Think about that. Life with Jesus is our spiritual wonderland. Through faith in him, all time is made sacred. He becomes our ultimate delight, not only for one day per, per week, but for all seven days. For all hours enjoyed with Jesus is us able to experience the holiness of God in our day-to-day -day walk, in our time, in his time. The Sabbath feast is fulfilled in Jesus. He says to the tired and beaten up, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you, what's the word? Rest. That is solemn rest. The deepest of rests. Complete rest. You live a life of restlessness. Jesus comes and he says, now come to me. And you can experience what you are truly made to be. 
You were made to enjoy the deepest of rest with God in Eden. You experience Eden in me. When we inhale life with Jesus, we breathe in true peace. Even on this side of heaven. And so I want to pause and ask you the question, do you experience this rest in Christ in your days? Another question might be to ask, how do you actually tap into that restfulness with Jesus? First of all, you need to be aware through faith that he's with you. His Holy Spirit lives in your heart. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Christ is with you wherever you go through the Spirit. That means wherever you walk, Christ is with you. He's in you, he's under you, he's above you, he's beside you, he's wherever you are because he's indwelling you through the Spirit. But we can also tap into his peace through prayer and Bible reading and the spiritual disciplines which continue to orient ourselves to the world that is to come. God has given you all these gifts of grace and you can actually experience peace on earth in Jesus. And that peace you enjoy now is a foretaste of the eternal peace that is to come. Look forward to it. (laughs) There's so much in these passages today, but I'd like to bring it to a close. In our teaching today, we have learnt two key ingredients to holy worship, and that is holy leaders and holy time. Even though these ingredients are essential, they are not always our reality. The truth is that we are broken people. We often exalt broken leaders and put them on the pedestal. And we often reject the gift of rest that is found in Christ. In times of worry, we can even become self-sufficient. But praise be to the God of grace. Even though we fix our eyes on earthly things, there is hope in the name of Jesus. When our leaders become addicted to things like fame and status, he continues to minister our hearts through the royal priesthood, the Christian community, even when our leaders fail. When our time is wasted away on material things, when we live like functional atheists and not stop to enjoy God, Christ places his easy yoke upon our shoulders when we hit our limit and says, come to me and rest with me. He says, choose peace. Choose me. You do not need to keep doing and doing and doing. You can actually stop. I am your shepherd and I love you. Jesus holds out grace to us because he wants us to be pure worshippers. But there's only one condition to enjoying these gifts. Will you accept Jesus? If you've already said yes to that, like last year or the year before that, or when you were young, praise be to God. But I'd like to ask you again, will you continue to accept his invitation each day. That's hard. How will you orient your mind and heart to continue to depend on Christ, your perfect leader who gives you perfect rest? That's the question that I'd like you to take away today. 
how will you continue to orient your heart to the one who desires to lead you in all holiness and lead you into rest? God wants us to value purity more highly than our lives. I therefore pray that you accept the Lord Jesus and strive to live a life of holy worship in him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you constantly teach us through your word. And I do pray that these words that I have shared may be your words and they will orient our hearts to Jesus, our Lord of peace, rest and holiness. Pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. If you've experienced the peace of Christ, let us sing a song of great joy. If you desire to experience the peace of Christ, I pray that your hearts will desire to sing these words of joy. Let us stand.